Thank you for tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm talking to the man with the most Oscars on Earth, an absolute effects legend, nine-time Academy Award winner, Dennis Murin. This is honestly a dream come true, and our conversation did not disappoint. From the landmark achievements of the original trilogy and the Temple of Doom minecart chase, Willow Morphing, T2 Liquid Metal, and so much more, we dive into Mr. Murin's career and honestly, I can't believe it happened. This is Totten Bay 94, episode 55, Dennis Murin. Before even diving into Star Wars and then everything that you were doing with ILM for 40 years, I would just love to start out at the beginning. What were your early inspirations? Harryhausen, effects movies, what was that kind of like for you growing up? Well, I was always attracted for some reason to uh, visual effects from the time I was six or seven years old. I used to get model plastic dinosaurs that you could buy and photograph them with still my parents' still camera. And then eventually worked up to an eight millimeter movie camera when I was about 10 years old and eventually got a 16 millimeter movie camera when I was about 15 or 16 or so. And I've always been to make special effect shots. It's to force perspective, like in Darby O'Gill, or stop motion, or big um, elaborate effect scenes like that John Fulton did, and Howard Lidecker, and Mac Johnson. I know almost all the guys that were doing that stuff. And I used to call them up even in the LA phone book and go. So, you know, I've been I'm doing the same thing I was doing back then. It's just amazing that I've been focused on this one thing and and kept it up. Well, that's amazing even back then because I feel like the focus on effects and the people that were actually making those effects weren't as pronounced as they are now, right? There was no Starlog, there was no Fangoria, there was nothing like that. And so that's kind of interesting that you were one of those first people that kind of just like contact these people and, and ask them what they were doing. And before me, Ray Harryhausen had done it. And uh, I was talking with Ben Mankiewicz, who's on the uh, TCM. And he said his dad or his uncle, the famous screenwriter, did that when he first came to L.A., just with the phone book and called these people up, you know. And they were thrilled because nobody cared about them. Nobody cared about the work or anything. So they were thrilled to get, even if I was a young kid, they, they were always very friendly. And I visited a lot of them at their homes and at the studios. What was then your process of becoming a professional through education or was it just kind of by doing it? Well, there wasn't any education. There were no film classes anywhere. Uh, there, were, there were film classes about how to get and make documentary movies, but not about doing effects or even doing feature films or anything like that. And I did, I did a low budget film when I was like 18 called Equinox that is on Criterion. They've got the original version of that and the new version of that. And uh, then, you know, I started uh, doing some commercials at a place called Cascade when I could find, when there was work for me for like a week here, a day there, not very much. Camera work doing stop motion. They did they did effects commercials. And uh, so, and, and then, you know, I got, I worked on a space film with my friend Tom Sherman for Charles Cahill, who made educational movies in 16 millimeter. We worked on that for about a year or two, doing a few hundred shots of the solar system and stuff like that. And, you know, there were just a lot of little things like that that were, that occasionally would go on. But basically for one two year stretch there, when I was in my early twenties, you know, I got like two or three days work the entire year for a year and it was really bad. And I was just about ready to get out of the industry that I wasn't even in. I mean, there wasn't <laughs> enough work going on, you know, to find anything. Well, how did you end up finding ILM that early? It was Edlund and Dykstra really starting up Industrial Light and Magic. How did you first get connected with them? 
You know, I uh, was working at Cascade, they, but this time they had sort of changed owners a little bit, and I got a full-time job there as the head of the camera department for a year. Then they went out of business. And uh, I'd heard about George doing this movie, this space movie, somewhere in L.A., and I didn't know him, but I had some friends who actually had met with George and were sort of discouraged because he was talking about maybe throwing models by the camera, sliding him down, or some, any sort of cheap thing. And these guys thought, this is never going to work. So, uh, and I can't remember remember what happened. I think I got their phone number somehow and called them up or they called me. I think I may have called them to see if they need any help. And I, I went over and I don't remember who I saw. I think it was John or Richard or who. And, uh, you know, eventually within two or three weeks or so got the job. That's incredible. I mean, the original Star Wars, it's a landmark moment in, in movies, really. And did y'all realize that when you're putting it together? Or what was it like? You know, the Dijkstra Flex was a huge achievement, but also the combination of the Dijkstra Flex with the very detailed models is what really makes it stand up today, right? You watch it today and it looks like someone put that together a year ago. What right. What was it like for your team to kind of push that to the forefront? Well, I came in as an outsider. I had been doing the traditional effect stuff, stop motion, building models that are very precious, you know, one-off yeah. and everything like that. And, uh, but I, I wanted to see what this new group of people who were doing, you know, the guys that did more like 2001 type work, Bob Abel and somebody, I didn't know anything about it. That's why I really wanted to get on the show. So when I walked in, I was just like, where the heck am I here? You know, I didn't understand I, I kind of understood why things were being done that way, but I didn't see quite how they were going to come together. I don't think many people did either. I think John had a, a clue, but there was going to be a lot of luck involved. We were just all holding on by the seat of our pants, but especially me. Uh, and once we got, because the equipment wasn't ready. When I walked in, some of the models were made early. Things were being put together. Things were being delivered all the time. So it wasn't until we really got the stuff together and started testing that we found out, God, this is going to be really hard. The <laughs> motions look really jaggedy. We couldn't get the move smooth or anything. The compositing was not really working very well. You know, the film stocks were all screwed up. And it took a lot of work by by Richard and John and the, Rob Blaylock and, the, and a lot of other people, Grant with the models, to pull it together so that for the last probably six or eight months on the show, we were really racing along and humming along and that's really when we got the show done it was right near the very end star wars has this huge impact on how special effects are made for movies forever but then how did your work on star wars then impact let's say your work on empire what learnings did you take from that first show and then to the second star wars movie well i learned a lot on close encounters because i went right off of star wars and four days was on close encounters working with, wow. with doug and richard yurzich completely different than star wars star wars is energy packed speeds and all Close Encounters with Steven, you know, is lyrical, poetic, still with some motion, completely different aesthetic. So I started getting into the aesthetic. That was a great six months on that show. Then went on to Galactica after that. And it was during that period on Galactica that it dawned on me the power of the Dijkstra Flex, which I, right. me, had, didn't feel I had really used because I didn't understand it. Which is you can, you can visualize, you can move, and this camera can shoot it, which was unheard of before. So I started changing the designs and doing some really elaborate shot designs on Galactica that worked out really well and then applied that to Empire. And you see a lot of that in the asteroid sequence, a lot of it in the, not so much in the Walker sequence, but, you know, ways to be able to make the shots look more energetic and more dangerous, more thrill than just recording things. And it's in the shot design. And I learned also about, you know, working with Joe Johnson on that and certainly George 
sort of how we can really amp everything up to, to add a lot of energy to it. So on Empire, you kind of mentioned the two scenes that really stick out to me, right? The, the asteroid chase and then the walkers and the stop motion and the go motion that was required for those. What was it like putting those together and what were your approaches to it? Well, the walkers were really something I wanted to try, like based on primarily on the way King Kong had been done. When it's all pretty much in front of the camera, you've got big painted backgrounds, you've got sets with the stop motion puppets, the animators can get in and do it. The whole thing is very controlled because I felt we needed that to get the clarity and the reality of it. I didn't think we could get that through blue screen, through optical compositing. So I wanted to get as much done in the camera as we could. That was a terrific experience working on that and being able to work with Phil and John and everybody. Thing. And then uh, the asteroid sequence was more about, it, about clarity, how to be able to get you to figure out what was really going on. Because the first couple of takes we started putting together, you couldn't tell you know, what are these things? They're flying toward you. Are they going to hit you? Are you really evade, you know, evading them? Or you couldn't tell what was big and what was small because uh, everything was different sizes. The asteroids were all different sizes. They were different, moving at different speeds, different directions. It was just more like a chaos. So organizing that, redesigning the shots and still being able to then put them together in the comp, knowing that it's, it's going to be clear, clear at that point, that really helped to make that sequence very clear to follow what's going on. And that's the whole point of everything we do is the audience has to understand it. I guess then moving to indie, right? Because indie, I guess, is in between some of the, the trilogy movies. It, what was it like moving that approach and then working? You had worked with Spielberg on Close Encounters, but then working... Uh, with Spielberg versus more of a hands-on Lucas approach. What was his approach to special effects and what kind of were you able to bring to, let's say, Raiders to begin with? Well, Steven's movies were, you know, that, that show, Raiders, has like got a lot of energy in it. But, you know, he's a, he wants to do as much as he can very real. I mean, he does. He doesn't care how the effects people do it as long as we give him good work. But I went in the direction of let's try to do as much real as we can. So we built a lot of big, giant models, including the lava pit that the people get dropped into, you know, about one third scale. So we could do it real without without many composites and all to get the the magical things that happen with reality that are too complicated to figure out that are hard to put into effects. And you can kind of tell when something is real and when it isn't. And that's one of the reasons. So that was a that was a completely different direction to go in uh, than what uh, ILM had been doing up until that time in some ways, and it really added a lot to uh, I think to the reality of the show. You don't want to cut to you know somebody looking at something in fear, you know, with smoke coming up behind them and smoke and and flames on their face and everything, and then cut back to something that looks like it's got a mat line around it and the back. You know, you could do it that way, but that wouldn't have been the way to do it. Plus, Raiders has your first acting role, uh, or one of your first, first acting roles. First and last. Second, there you go. also in Star Tours, too, but <laughs> I was very tiny, but yes. Right. No, yeah. I actually just looked that up a couple of days ago. I was like, how much would it be to buy this copy of Life magazine, right? You know, yeah, the, well, that, <laughs> yeah. Temple of Doom, Academy Award winner for Best Visual Effects, you know, obviously stands out to me because of the minecart chase. What were the different elements that you had to put together 
for that entire sequence, which is just, I saw it on a big screen a couple months ago and it's just, you don't take a breath for 10 minutes. And yeah, I saw it recently too. And it just really holds up. It had to have so much energy in it that I wanted to give as much control as you could, which meant making things as small as you can. So I wanted to do it mostly in the camera without blue screen elements and stuff like that, like, like the other stuff and do it in stop motion or go motion, whatever you want to call it, sort of the same thing. When, when I laid out the smallest camera we had was like about 10 inches wide. But I laid out how big the set had to be to be able to have a shot going straight ahead through a tunnel for five seconds at about 40 miles an hour and then make a bank and everything. The thing was going to have to be about 150 feet long. The set, the, mini, the miniature set. It's no way. We had, didn't have the room for it. The money would have been crazy. And when I stepped, stepped back and looked at that, I said, this is all because the camera's too big. So is there a smaller camera? And I came up with the idea of just using a still camera, like a Nikon. It could have been anything, but a Nikon still still camera. Take the back plate off, get a little little uh, magazine that we could just make in the shop, and sort of bolt it into the back with and had film in it and everything. And would this thing work? Was the thing would it hold up and be able to shoot 200 frames without just you know one frame at a time without blowing up or falling apart or whatever? It worked great. You know, one of the reasons <laughs> with a big yeah. camera like a Nikon, they're strong. You know. Small, but I mean, they're inside, they're built really well. So that meant we could get everything down to a, a size where we could afford it. And uh, it gave us more control and all that. And Tom Santamon animated that stuff. And uh, Mike McCallister was the camera guy on that. And that really came out really well. So Really, really did. That's an understatement. With, with Jedi, I really view it as kind of the culmination of all these learnings, right? The, the final part of the Star Wars trilogy and, and all the different elements that you've really honed over six, seven year span. The two that really stick out to me, uh, the speeder bike chase, of course, but then also the Rancor. What was it like putting that together and, and having to make that uh, alive on a screen? Well, we started out with, with uh, doing a man in a suit. That seemed like, to George, like, maybe we can make this work. And we did a test, and I think that's around somewhere, and George didn't like it. He said, this is never going to work. It's too obvious it's a guy in a suit. So then we went to what we were talking about doing it go motion, which we had done a lot of on Dragon Slayer, and uh, got the saying, no mo, go mo, because that's too hard and painful on the poor animator and everybody else. And we didn't need it for the sequence. So... Somebody, may have been Phil, may have been Madden, came up with the idea of doing a rod puppet or a puppet up the back. It's probably Phil. Right. And do it like a Muppet. But then the trick, and he did a great job on it, and make everything small, you know, scale it down, right. get the best lenses, best camera, best bright enough light, enough light so we can keep everything in focus. And then, you know, the technical side is then, then it gets to the aesthetic. How do you keep it from looking like you're, see, you're sensing a hand inside of this puppet. Look at a Muppet, and right away you know for some reason there's a hand in it, right? Well, we know our body so well, we know what how a hand moves. Didn't, didn't fool you for a minute. So we ended up shooting a lot of that stuff like backwards and, and rancor, shooting the shot sometimes at really high speed, and Phil was moving really fast. Anything so that when you project it back, it doesn't look like it's a hand in moving it. So those are the, you know, tricks like that. And that's stuff that I think my background, even from a kid, from playing around with film and flipping the film upside down, I think I will, I'm very comfortable doing whatever it takes to get the final shot. And that's always what I've been interested in. I'm not interested so much in the technique we use or even the shooting of it. I'm just interested in the final shot and how to make that as good as possible. One of the things that keeps standing out to me is 
people's focus for you on the creative side? And I think you've even said there was a great Cinefix interview with you where they talked about the final 5% and that randomization, that, that extra element to something that makes it feel more real. Right. Were there any shots like that in, let's say, the Star Wars trilogy that, that had that 5% that you still remember and that still kind of hold true now? You know, there's just so many of them. You know, we originally started out, I mean, I mean, it's, it's sort of like once you find something, then you can use it. And, what, and we start out with the spaceships just flying sort of like this, nice curves and off they go. And it's, it, it just didn't seem like it had any fun. So I tried some where we skidded the ship uh-huh. like, it's a, you know, like it's a motorcycle on a slick ground or something. And you can kind of look at that and relate to it. You don't recognize that, you know, you're skidding on a road or something like that or a motor, you know. But that fun factor we then, that to me is the final 5%. Once we got it into a shot or two and saw that it worked, it added energy to it and reality, you could relate to it, then you'd put it in all the following shots going on. So there were a lot of those that, that, that last little bit. Sometimes I think we've had something I can't, I don't know if it was in one of the shows where we, we literally, I hate to say, we added a lens flare that covered a problem. <laughs> right. Whatever it yeah. is that works. Moving through your filmography, we then get to kind of the advent of computer generated effects. And especially Willow and the Abyss are kind of that demarcation of Willow with the morphing. And then, of course, the Abyss with the incredible effects that really still hold up. With Willow, especially, and that morphing technology, what were the initial challenges of one of the first CG things put to film? What was that kind of process like well again ron uh, and john and george didn't care how we did it just as long as it was something special and i was looking around for something and we thought we could do something and but it ended up always all i came back to was like american werewolf in in london or whatever it is where you have to cut away great work but you have to cut away and i wanted to do something that looked more magical and special you know that was when we had just sort of um, taken over the the department, uh, ILM had. So we essentially now had our own computer graphics department. And we had to make sure we could get the film that we sh- had to shoot the backgrounds on, the characters, into the computer, which was a major. And then getting the color space right so the colors recreated correctly, that every scene didn't have mathematical stuff, that we could understand the monitor. And because the monitor does not look anything like film look. A million things that you take for granted right now because you, you're doing them all the time. You know they work. Back then, we had no clue if any of this stuff was going to work. But I'm very methodical on testing stuff in advance. And it seemed like we could do it. We put stuff together step by step on it. And, uh, you know, we really managed to pull that whole thing off by... By planning the shots out, planning planning the characters so the shapes weren't too crazy. And then it's a matter of sort of like putting it out there and seeing what the audience thinks of it, you know. The great things that about working in, you know, in Hollywood and showbiz or in Marin County in showbiz is you try these things and they're in the theater and you get feedback. You know, it's not like you're writing a PhD or writing a book and you put them out, you know, you get feedback right away and then hopefully you have time to put what you learned into the next show. And something I always have tried to do is make the work I have just done obsolete in my own mind. It was great. I hope you like it, but it's obsolete. I don't want to see it again. But you know that that technique works. So when you come to the next project, you can think uh, you know, harder about a different way to do it. You kind of know more techniques that work now and what doesn't. And every time you try to sort of like talk yourself not to do the same thing again. And when I'm not talking about so much about technology. I'm talking about the image. When the image comes up on the screen, it is still 
startling to see it. And it usually isn't if you've seen something like it before. So how do you make something new and startling and look natural? That's all something, you know, that comes in the design of the shot and directing the work, right. you know. No, incredible. And I mean, you're saying that. And then I'm looking at it, It's like, okay, Terminator 2, Jurassic Park, like things that people just jumped out of their seats seeing for the first time because it was completely new and unique. What was it like, let's say Terminator 2, Academy Award Best Visual Effects again, what was it like putting that together, working on the liquid metal aspect of Terminator and, and making it really blend in with live action? Yeah, it was really great. We had to hire a lot of new people for the optical department, for, for the CG department in that. And uh, they were great. Everybody was gang-ho to try to make the show work. And it was, it was, you know, it was fundamentally tremendous idea that Jim had. I mean, everything starts with the idea. But what you, his vision is so good, what you don't want to do is compromise it. But a lot of the stuff we did in that show was like impossible. You couldn't have done it for real. But I'd seen a lot of CG that had been done. And even though we hadn't done a chrome figure, other people had done chrome things in commercials. And if you sort of understand CG, you know, that's a doable thing. You're reflecting an environment that could be photographs or anything. So I kind of thought that we could probably do this. And, you know, I've seen walking people and everything. You know, we could have a chrome walking person, and I and I worked really hard to get a digital system together so that you wouldn't see mat lines around the character. So we did it all with digital compositing. So the the comps are like perfect, and nobody's seen anything like that before. And uh, and Jim was cooperative on it and really great, and his ideas were great, and the department was great, and and you know that was that was the to me that was the breakthrough movie. A lot of people. Jurassic was the breakthrough. Well, that was the popular one for kids. Yeah, and wow, it's amazing. Yes, but the but the technique and the learning and all putting a system together that could really change things was was Terminator Two. And even now, like going through the bars is still just you're just like oh shit, like that's that's wild, wild. It's impossible. Yeah. I mean, there were. I, I mean, I was in dailies then, you know, because I'm not a CG person. I'm not even really a. Ta I'm a cameraman, but I'm not really a technical person. But I love the results. That's what I'm going for. And you know, I'd be saying the daily did we do this you know this is impossible it's absolutely impossible to do this so that's the inspiration you know when you and that's what i was always trying to do as a kid you know make those plastic dinosaurs move and they never did you know but always you know something more that i hadn't seen before, something more so that was a great show oh okay what you mentioned it briefly and i would love to talk about because i haven't heard you talk about it that much which is star tours and the original star tours what was it like creating something like that for a for a theme park ride and, and making it an actual experience uh so when this show came up to be you know one point of view i sort of ended up directing it and i wrote a story for it and uh and tom fitzgerald and tony baxter were involved in the disney side and george of course on our side and I, I, I think it came out really neat, and and it was so fun to put in whatever you wanted. We had some nice meetings, and you know, let's try this type of sequence, let's try that kind of sequence. And the trick also is how to make the transitions, of course. How do you, how, and put pauses. You've got to have pauses so the audience can collect themselves after a big action sequence going through the ice crystals or whatever it is, you know? So you could you could design all those in it and how long the pauses were, then you bank off and go somewhere else. It's hard because film, we couldn't do really long takes on film at all. So we had to have transition points or literally in the optical department and in the camera department, we could make edits that you wouldn't see. So it's actually made up of many, many different pieces of, of cuts. There's nothing long in it. Uh, and when you put it together with the right camera banking and blurs, it looks like it's all in one shot. And then it was fun because you could focus the attention out the front window. So whatever was just outside of the window, you could suddenly surprise the audience <laughs> by having it right in front of right. it. 
or having something hit the window. It was a new thing. I mean, for me, it was a new thing. And, uh, and then we kind of did something like that. I think it was for Universal on Space Race a couple of years later. It was a same sort of simulator right. ride. Moving to the prequels and to the now the late 90s and 2000s, your work on the prequels, really, I mean, like, there's a lot of physical work that isn't really mentioned that much, right? People assume just the big CG spectacle things, but really there's a ton of model work, there's a ton of practical, there's all the, the miniatures. What were you finding as the biggest challenge, especially like, let's say, Phantom Menace, and what did you kind of bring to make sure that it kind of meshed with the original trilogy? Well, I was just one of the three supervisors on it, so I had my own sequences. And I did, you know, the underwater Gungan sequence and and uh, the big battle at the end. And there were two or three other ones in there. But the the big thing that was going on that we needed to do is we had so many shots of these characters in the backgrounds. And, and the camera's lingering and, you, and they're performing and they're all, all so many different characters and they all had to look like they were actually there and, and alive and all and moving. So, and, you know, with expression and that you didn't, they didn't pop out as being some sort of a fake right. thing. So that was a lot of learning and Really getting in, more like also in the nuts and bolts about getting the imagery to be to match perfectly between the back plate and the CG image. Because often the CG image can be too sharp and you don't know why it doesn't quite look right. But it's just too sharp because it doesn't have the film grain on it, something like that. For me, the biggest challenge on that and also the most fun possibly was the big Gungan battle, which I'm amazed that that just kind of took off and has been done in so many films now. Yeah. With You know, you have like... 3,000 people here, find two, 3,000 there. And that was neat. You know, I had a lot of sort of carte blanche on the shot design with that that George gave me. And as long as, you know, ran it past him. So I could design kind of how to do this and get it done in time. And I tried a lot of experimenting. I did a lot of the backgrounds with that with still photos, trying to see if we could get by, which, trying to see again what works and what doesn't work so we can apply to our tool set so we don't do anything that's a waste of time. So most of the backgrounds in that thing are just still photos shot with a Nikon wow. still camera. Nothing tricky. And then you put the characters in and hopefully the shot design and the performance of the characters keeps you interested. With now the advent of CG, and what do you see now as the, the future of, of these movies? Or at least, let's say, the future of movies that will make that impact, right? Because we've really reached an advent where it's all CG, right? Like it's just going to be a cavalcade of effects. Where do you see the next kind of startle happen, right? Where, what, it, what can a filmmaker use in his toolbox to really actually bring something to a forefront? You know, that's a great question, and I have the answer, but I can't tell anybody. <laughs> that's fair. No, that's, that's fair. Truth is, I have no idea, and anybody who says they do has no idea what it is. You know, we're getting closer on digital humans. You know, it kind of works. Like, And as long as you're doing something different, like making them younger, making them weird, that's kind of interesting. Uh, but I think it's going to, you know, unless we get into super high frame rate and better 3D and immersion and, and VR that is compelling in some way and not you know, just puts you off that a lot of people can enjoy it or whatever. I don't know. I think it's always, it's going to come back to the story it, because there really isn't much new. I mean, the same, there's, what do they say? There's seven stories and everything's a variation on something like that. And if you can sell something like that first shot of the, of the uh, Apatosaurus in Jurassic right. Park, that's the shot that everybody I know who's talked about that movie says, that's the one that knocked me out when the camera pans up and there it is, you know, eating that thing. That shot, to, the whole design of that sequence, where you've got people driving up, getting out, sense of wonder, they go and look at it, and then you see it. That type of filmmaking is what makes the difference. And so it always comes down to the film, how it's directed and all. You told a story at that Academy event about 
Ryan Johnson and he wanted to use models just to use models. But then you did the two shots from Empire side by side. Right. The technology is there now. The technology to make it feel like a model or make it feel real is there. So like what you're saying, the story is what is really the important driver of, of anything. Right. And of course, the the technique is always there. The skill is always there. But the shots still look like CG. So it's how you use it. You know, and, and we learned a lot from doing that, from copying the moves of the real Falcon, a real object and the look of a real object. And a lot of people now are, are skipping that and going into other stuff. And, you know, that might be good, or but it can, if they go the wrong way, it'll look kind of fake. Well, Mr. Murin, thank you very much for everything. I was, when I was doing all this, I was looking at some old documentaries and I realized the first behind the scenes documentary I ever watched was the little short in front of the New Hope special edition. And you're the only ILM guy on it's like Lucas, Mark Hamill, and you. And so I was like, oh, that's my first. That was like what made me love all this. And now I work at Fangoria. And it's like, oh, this is. Thank you very much for everything and all sure. the inspiration and, and coming on the show. It's a it's a huge honor. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's been fun. Nice meeting yeah, you. Nice to meet you as well. We'll talk soon. Thank you again to Mr. Muren for being such an inspiration to me for most of my life and especially now for coming on the show and being so generous with his time. I hope you all enjoyed hearing his stories and experiences and I also hope you were able to tell that I was smiling so hard the entire time. In our show notes is also the link to the Talking Bait 94 store that has a very limited restock of all of our credits lines of shirts. Most of those sizes are sold out, so I would just get on it right now. Next week is my conversation with Steve Sansweet. So until then, stay tuned, leave a five-star review, and may the force be with you.